You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your robotic host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your totally generalized host, Shane. Nice. Yeah. So today we are picking up on our conversation that we have been having mm-hmm. regarding applied behavior analysis and a term I'm going to introduce now, which is some potential reform to applied behavior analysis. And where this really started, the criticisms of ABA and I guess the controversy around it with respect to the autistic community. So this is going to further the discussion around some of the concerns that have come up, some of the critiques that have come up. And yeah, I mean, we're we're excited to continue to dig and we're excited to spend some time on this particular argument because I've heard this since I entered the field. This is not an, a new argument, but it is one that's definitely worth kind of unpacking a bit. So if you are just joining us for the first time, welcome to the podcast. We are a psychology podcast. We tend to tackle all things psychology related. And lately we have been doing a series of discussions on the controversy that exists to some extent around ABA being used as an intervention to support people with an autism diagnosis. If you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, although I do think that this episode will more or less stand alone because we're tackling a specific argument, the first two do set up the context for the discussion that we're going to have today. So I'd recommend going back and listening to those. And if you don't, I feel like you still be able to understand what we're talking about, where we're coming from in this discussion today. To kind of kick it off, you know, we there is that intro episode that talks about the arguments that we're going to cover and some of the, the people that are involved. The first argument's already out, so we recommend listening to that and just kind of absorbing that information. And same with this. We decided to kind of break these up into chunks so that you can listen to the argument, kind of absorb the argument, gather some feedback, and share that with us if you have any. And so far, people have, which we super appreciate. Yeah. And actually, to that point, I do want to address just... A couple of things that were in some of the feedback that we've gotten to help, I guess, further the conversation moving forward. There's there's two main points I want to make before we get started in our discussion today. Cool? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the first one is that the way that we described the position of people who were arguing that ABA is problematic to the point of potentially being abusive, I said that there wasn't like a succinct, cohesive, I guess set of arguments that had been developed that we were like, there wasn't like a list, you know, where we could read through a list of grievances or, or statements or claims and then characterize those and either, you know, discuss them or argue against them or, or what have you. And essentially that the way that this landed for this, this listener was that the lack of organization was the fault of the movement and that they should be well articulated, similar to the sort of ABA as a community. And that, it was insulting to the people who have maybe this executive functioning stuff, expressive language and general communication skills that they were sort of trying their best. They were coming from a place of sort of a high emotion situation and that it was insulting to say that they weren't articulated. Well, I really didn't want it to come across that way. What I was really trying to say in this and what I'd like to clarify now is that we're not necessarily going to be addressing all the concerns out there and everything that we say, we're sort of distilling from some of the things that people have said. So essentially that it's not like there was a list that existed that I was just ignoring. 
Right. I didn't want it to, to come across of like, well, this is what they're saying, but I'm not going to say what they're saying. I'm just going to say it in my own words instead. And and I kind of had to essentially take a bunch of different statements that are out there and 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 restate them. And so I was really just trying to state that I wasn't being critical of the fact that there's not a movement. I'm not asking anybody to have a movement. And so I, I apologize if it sounded that way. Instead, what I was trying to do was is communicate that everything that we're saying is is coming from from our language around what we were seeing other people say and and that if there had been something to to take from directly that we would have and instead we were sort of synthesizing it down into specific points because essentially people just kind of talked online which is great like they they have a right to do that of course and it just meant that I want to be clear that if I say something that m- misrepresents that position I am doing my best to synthesize it down into a single point from a bunch of things that were being said because the things that were being said happened in a conversational manner. So that's that's all. Does that sort of clear that up, you think? I would like use this metaphor, right? So like if you go work with a family who is bilingual and you don't speak the language, that's not the family's problem. That's our problem. Sure. And so that's kind of the same argument. It's like what what we were doing is when we were looking for these arguments, there wasn't a clear place where we could find those arguments, but we did see the discussion. And that's our problem to be able to find that information, to organize that information in a way that we can discuss it in a way that, you know, we kind of felt was meaningful. That is absolutely no dig at the community that is making the argument. And that's certainly no dig at the movement itself. It was simply more of just providing contextual information to say like, hey, this is what we're seeing. And this became our problem. And one of the challenges that we faced as we were organizing our arguments. That was very well said. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. All right, cool. So if we're okay on that, and again, I apologize if it sounded like I was being critical, that that was not my intention. So I, I'm trying to reframe it here so that it, it lands hopefully better than it did the first time. The second piece of feedback that I think that we got that was extremely helpful was thinking about the way that we've characterized this discussion is sort of an us versus them. There's sort of a, there's a group over here that is defending applied behavior analysis, and there's a group over here that is criticizing applied behavior analysis, arguing essentially for like, let's get rid of it. And I, I did not explicitly say that that was the position, but I think that that is how that, that was communicated of like, that was the argument from that position is like, ABA is so bad, it needs to be eliminated was their position. Well, that's actually not the whole conversation that I think some people pointed out very helpfully is that there's also a group of people who are nested inside of behavior analysis who are professionals in behavior analysis who are also highly critical of behavior analysis because they see the value in this field and they want the field to do better. Yeah. And so they they call themselves reformists or reformers is the the position of let's find where we can do better and make those changes because here are the things that are not going well with us. Right. And so there's a, it's not as it's not this black and white thing. It's not just, there's the, this side and this side, there's a lot of different groups who have different arguments about this. And a lot of people who might say like they're critical of behavior analysis because they want the field to be successful and to be the best that it could possibly be. And that that's, that's another way of framing this discussion. And I think that's one of the challenges that we've had coming up with and discussing any of the arguments that have come up or any of the concerns that have come up is, is that it's, it is incredibly nuanced and it is not black and white. It is not, there is not a dyad to this argument. And so, yeah, there, there are many people that are for 
improvements. There are, as a matter of fact, I feel like we kind of stand in that space too, where it's like, we are, our our goal is to have the discussion so that we can continue to do better. And we kind of had like uh, that discussion before we started where, you know, at the end of the day, like, yes, we do have our biases. Yes, we do come from this as practitioners, but ultimately we come from this as two people who are seeking to do better. And we love our field so much that we want it to do better and we want to improve it. And we're going to critique the hell out of it. I mean, that is our goal here. Yeah. You know, that is one of our goals here. So like this is, you know, we are not in defense of anything. We are in defense of good helping work more than anything at this point in time. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth noting that it is far more nuanced than us versus them. We're in defense of humanitarian science. Yes, exactly. That's what we're in defense of. Yes. And, and I want that on a t-shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Super cool to have this engagement from people who are writing in, giving us feedback. The episode, you know, still has some time to marinate. So if even if you haven't sent your thoughts yet and you still want to, please do. The next episode will be out, obviously, at the time that you hear this. But as we mentioned before, just so we're clear, there's going to be about a week buffer because we record a couple weeks out from when the episode gets published. And so one gets published in the meantime, we're, you know, we've already recorded the next one. Mm-hmm. And so if there's the feedback doesn't occur super quickly. I apologize for the delay, but we did space them out the way that we did so that we could get a bunch of feedback in the interim. I do want to say one more quick thing, because this is a concern that was raised on, across many platforms, including in, in the email feedback that we got, which is the, the inquiry about whether or not we are going to include voices from autistic people. The implications of this are gigantic. And we're not going to go into that right now, just to say that this is something that we are we're working on what that could or should look like inside of this discussion. So you can feel free to continue to suggest that in whatever capacity. Again, we're always happy to hear feedback and suggestions. And that is something that is not so simple as just have someone on. It is a very complicated issue yeah. that we'll get into later. Yeah. I mean, and you know, with the feedback that we've gotten so far and even in this, so this is the third episode we've recorded in this series. And in this space, we've already come up with the possibility of having an extra two episodes, possibly a third episode within this space, because this there's so much to unpack and we want to give every single topic enough room to breathe. It is one of those things that's going to continue to evolve and grow. So please continue to send us the feedback, continue to talk to us about this, continue to ask the questions and know that you're heard when you say, Hey, are you going to include autistic voices? That is the discussion that we're having constantly, right? You know, in the last episode, we talked about JRC, like that is specifically a topic that we want to get into more of. We've talked about like some of the areas that we maybe don't touch on and looking at an episode around that too, to kind of unpack some of the questions that you might have that don't really fit into the argument. So we are, we are having the conversations about how to expand this. All right. So with that sort of housekeeping item, I feel we've addressed that. Do you have anything else that we need to, you feel like we need to add on that before we move on? No, I think that we can get into the episode proper now. All right. So moving on to our next point of discussion, the last episode, I don't remember if we've summarized, but we talked about the history of punishment and use of aversives in the field of behavior analysis and sort of where it is now and the concern that people have had about that, which which is, of course, legitimate. And today we turn to the next argument, which is that applied behavior analysis turns kids into little robots who don't understand what they're doing after they've been taught to do the thing that they do. So let's just give a description of what that means or what this critique has to say. So there are times where you will see or meet somebody who might be diagnosed with autism 
And you might say, hi, what's your name? And this individual having been through some type of ABA responds with, hi, I'm good. Clearly spitting out a rote memorized response to a common greeting and not understanding the social exchange. Like, for example, I've worked with a young woman who anytime she saw anybody, she'd be like, hi, mom. Hi, mom. Oh, hi, mom. Yeah. And ultimately, when she would see me and you all can't see me because this is an audio format, I do have long hair now, but I had short hair then and I had a big beard, so I didn't look like mom. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I never I never met mom. Mom was not involved. You know, that's a whole different that's a whole different scenario. <laughs> but the idea is like, so there's there's this rote response, which occurs in the same phrasing, the same intonation, and it happened pretty regularly. Interesting. I have seen somewhat similar. And essentially, this argument is that people who go through ABA come out with these generic, inauthentic social interactions or even daily living behaviors that look like what would happen if you tried to teach a robot to be human. You know, yeah. it sort of uh, approximates it. As a side note, I recently heard of an AI trying to create pickup lines, and one of them was, you look like a thing, and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite things is looking at like when robots are like, forced to like watch a bunch of like a movie a thousand times and they write their own script for it. Yeah. Because it, no, it doesn't make any sense. Right. They have a, they have a, gave contact with all those things, but yeah, like what will happen is like what spits out or what, what languaging comes out is it doesn't like fit social norms or nuances, you know, and we'll talk more about that later, but the idea is like the nuance is missing. And so it becomes kind of like this, like either robotic or just kind of just barely off that you're like, mm, there's something missing there. Or there's something like there's skill missing there. You know, there's, and, and that's kind of what happens here. So essentially this argument boils down to this. Okay. These kids learn to project an air of quote unquote, normal social behavior. Right. Right. But don't actually know or care what they're doing. So I think the subtext here is that trying to teach quote, normal behavior is inappropriate anyway. And that these kids should just be their quirky, weird selves. But we'll get into that in the final argument. But now, like, that's that's kind of what it boils down to is that some of these kids are taught, quote unquote, normal behaviors, and uh, they should maybe not be taught those things. So I hope that we've, we've done justice to essentially what the discussion here that is being made is that the kids who go through ABA, they don't necessarily learn skills that then have them look like they're interacting in a normal social way. And I think, again, sort of a subtext here is that they shouldn't need to. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like teaching them to do something that looks weird when they shouldn't even need to be taught to do something in the first place. That's like that. Yeah. I think that's more or less where this is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into, I guess, how we how we would talk about this from the sort of reform, not quite rebuttal, but, you know, I guess discussion angle of like, what is there to unpack about this? And I think for the purpose of avoiding redundancy. We'll focus just on the robotic nature of the outcomes, and we'll address the other parts of this argument in subsequent points of this of the series of discussions that we're having. And of course, as always, and I, I want to do this, you know, when we have these discussions, the first thing to acknowledge is that the strange, robotic, and often awkward behavior of individuals with autism who have experienced ABA can be off-putting, and it may not even consistently serve the best interest of the individual. I think that's a very fair criticism that not only is it kind of robotic or mechanical, but it doesn't necessarily help them in any, any way. Like that's, that's fair. And you know, this comes from a lot of different places and we'll try to unpack that a little bit. But I mean, I think about like when I was learning language, right. And so like when I first started learning Spanish and I would say something, I'd be like, donde esta la biblioteca? Like, horrible no accent no inflection nothing i mean nothing like there's no way that would pass as like 
any sort of like normal conversational languaging, right? Like, yeah. So absolutely. You know, that there is that like, that's kind of one of the things to consider is like that type of output and that type of outcome is a little bit odd, right? It's, it's odd phrasing, odd languaging. And that is of no fault of the person. And I just want that to be clear. That is of no fault of the person who's receiving that service. It is, it is absolutely like the phrasing that was taught. So as we look at this, you know, it's worth considering the alternatives and the broader implication of all of this. Like one of the concerns, and this is kind of something we've come up with, is that the robotic responses make the individual stand out as quote unquote weird to the person with whom they interact. However, if they hadn't learned any social responses, what would they be doing instead? Right. And that's something worth looking at. So probably just ignore the person most of the time, what, or, but whatever it is, whatever that alternative was before, it would likely not look like a social interaction. And this would be far more obvious than having an awkward reaction. Like, so like somebody who is literally not attending to you, somebody who's not making eye contact with you or and not, I shouldn't say eye contact. That's not the right phrase, but somebody who's not attending to their name when they're called somebody who's not having conversations with you, that's going to stand out more than somebody who's kind of like phrasing something a little bit strange. Yes. Either totally ignored, or I guess from the perspective of someone who doesn't know, and they're, they're talking to an individual who's not responding in any way, or at least not to what you're saying, they're doing their own thing and they seem totally engaged in, in whatever task they're doing. And it's sort of like, for some reason, I have in my in my mind the image of you're boarding a plane somewhere, which yeah. <laughs> almost yeah. nobody's done in like a year. <laughs> right. I certainly haven't done in over a year. But let's say you're going to a gate and the person is sort of saying something to someone who's boarding the plane and they're just like not even there. And like maybe they deal with that stuff a lot, but like just having them feel like, does this person need help? Like they understand what I'm saying to them. Having them at least have some kind of acknowledged response I think is going to facilitate their what they do next better than just nothing. And I don't think that they teaching them some generic response is to the detriment of that individual, even if it it comes across a little weird. Yeah. Although I, I do want to say, like, I think coming back to the fact that I think we do want them to have some understanding of the situation and be able to respond. Ideally, that'd be where they're at. And so I think there's sort of a topical level of like, let's make this look like a closer approximation of a social interaction and let's try and do our best to have that be a meaningful thing for this individual where it makes sense. Yeah. So I think that's the, where I come from. One thing I want to clarify is like, we've kind of used the terms weird and awkward within this. And I think it's important to note that when we say weird or awkward, what we're saying is like that phrasing is coming from a space where we're talking about what are considered neurotypical social norms. Right. And that's, I think, really important to recognize as a potential bias in the language that we're using, because when we say weird, we're saying weird in comparison to a larger group of people who are considered considering certain social norms. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We're not saying the autistic folks are weird. We're not saying anything like that. What we're saying, just to be clear, is like the languaging around this is often that somebody would say this is weird in a social interaction when what we're saying is it's not considered a social norm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying that. That's exactly right. That I think I didn't say that very well that uh, we don't care if it's weird or awkward. That sounds like a judgment phrase that doesn't get us anywhere. But I think where I was using that was specifically from the experience of the the person who is interacting with that type of behavior yes. that to them, it would, they would probably label that as weird or awkward. Yeah. And so like that's sort of a, a lay 
common language way of that people describe behavior that does not necessarily follow the social norms that they're used to. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that they're right for calling it weird or awkward. I was just trying to sort of speak to what their experience, what the kind of language they might use to describe it. Yeah. Because otherwise we're just saying like people are neurodiverse. They are just people who are neurodiverse. There's, there's no reason to judge the pattern of their behaviors that look different from what you might see in a general population. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Another concern here seems to be, as we talked about, the fact that they're not understanding what they're saying in these interactions in terms of like they say, hi, how are you? Or hi, I'm good. You know, whatever it is that they learn in these sort of robotic fashion. And, and that's just an example. There's lots of different phrases that they might learn that would feel, I guess, inauthentic is, yeah. you know or not not genuine whatever yeah okay so we want them to understand first i don't think that we can comfortably make any claims about what they do or don't understand in these spaces right i don't think it helps the conversation to assume what they're thinking okay right but the desire to have them you know have some stake in the conversation is fair as i said earlier to the concern about understanding if they don't understand what they're saying when they give a generic response then they definitely don't understand the interaction if they have no response at all So their comprehension of the situation isn't really improved by not teaching them to say something rather than nothing. Right. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. What we're really trying to do is to teach understanding in the extent that we can, but this is, it's extremely difficult and labor intensive and people learn this in different ways. So we're still figuring out how to do this. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate we haven't gotten there more quickly, but you know, we're the, the research is happening the interventions are ongoing and developing and improving. And in the meantime, we have the strategy of teaching some common social responses that are likely to contact some amount of social reinforcement as opposed to, well, we can't get it 100% perfect the first time, so we may as well not even try. Right, right. Now, as an aside, too, we do a lot of things socially that have no functional utility, right? So there are phrases in our languaging that we'll say that that are kind of just, you know, they don't really serve that great a purpose, right? So for example, like, why do we say bless you when someone sneezes? Abraham and I, not religious folks. So bless you doesn't even make any sense. It's a common courtesy in our languaging, right? Or, you know, saying like, how are you as part of a greeting when we are neither interested in nor even listening to the response? I heard a comedian say one time, uh, not too long ago, it's like, when somebody asks how you're doing, you don't answer honestly. Nobody actually wants to hear it. That's inconsiderate. If you say I'm not doing well, that's inconsiderate. Don't do that. So it's kind of a funny like little bit, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are phrases that we use that are kind of like functionally not very useful in our day-to-day stuff. They are topographical things. They are part of sort of cultural norms that we've adopted. And there's uh, every country is going to have something similar to this. I think Mm -hmm. the extent to which, you know, what that greeting looks like and how it takes place and when you greet someone and all of that's going to have sort of cultural norms that are relevant to a time and place and and history. Yeah. So just as a, you know, as a note, I think that's relevant inside of this. Yeah, absolutely. So another kind of point within this discussion is the fact that behavior analysis is trying to teach the learners that we're working with to do anything at all rather than just letting them quote be themselves but this is going to come up in a final point we're not going to address it in depth here but this is this is something that we are we wanted to spend more time on because it does require a little bit more unpacking than just a couple minutes absolutely that definitely is worthy of of a lot of consideration because i think that is one of the main concerns honestly with the with the whole thing is that aspect of it. So this whole time we've been talking about greetings and social interactions. 
But there are also behaviors such as routines that behavior analysts might teach that also kind of look robotic. Because as I said, this is about the fact that they, they feel rote, they feel inauthentic, maybe they don't understand what they're doing. And although conversations are where it might be the most obvious, there are a lot of other things that, that are routine-like that can seem to have this, this quality of looking, I guess, like the person's just doing it just to do it. Yeah, or it's inflexible. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's rigid, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not clear if this is the nature of the argument being made, but I think a quick reply to this is a few points here. One, routines help almost everybody have a comfortable, familiar, efficient way of going about their day without experiencing stress and anxiety about everything that you have to do and the choices you have to make. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people kind of don't like routines. Some people like them more than others, but it is something that is generally helpful. We are, most people adopt some kind of routine throughout their day, and it just it makes the normal things we have to do every day feel a little more comfortable, maybe, or at least familiar. Yeah. The second point here is that it is a characteristic feature of autism that people with this diagnosis tend to find comfort in routines. So this is often very easy for them to re- to adopt. Mm-hmm. Is this idea of like having these sort of routines where they go through the same steps every time. Yeah, very clear expectations, very, very clear right. steps. I mean, yeah, that, that is something that seems to be pretty helpful. Exactly. Yeah, that tends to be something that is an easy go-to for a lot of interventions because it's so comfortable and it, it really helps the situation feel not confusing. Oftentimes, you'll hear people even talk about the fact that when you have an individual with an autism diagnosis, when you disrupt their routine, that can be really frustrating for them. So helping them adopt a functional routine that's helpful is often very preferred. So there's the roteness in that as well. Yeah. Also, to be very clear, that's not exclusive to autism. Like if my yes. routine gets disrupted, I get like irrationally irritable. <laughs> right. That's not an autism specific trait, but it is something like that does come up a lot in these discussions. Very much so. Yeah. When we when we have like a thing that we do that we know how to do and that gets interrupted in the sequence of steps that we're used to doing, that can be very frustrating for a lot of people, and myself included. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's something I really don't like doing and then the disruption might be a welcome one. But yeah, yeah, generally, yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if it's part of something I have to do, I know how to do, I like doing, then that's yeah. problematic. Yeah. And then the third point here is these routines are a way of helping these individuals develop some independent living skills so that they have some more control over their own lives. It's important to have an option for variety in daily activities, and I think that behavior analysts do their best to create the opportunity for variability and flexibility in those routines so that they can adapt. Granted, some people are better at this than others, and Mm -hmm. some consumers take to this more easily than others, but the effort is made with the individual's best interest in mind as much as possible that if you know how to do these series of things that are like they're kind of rote and they're kind of robotic and they're kind of repetitive. But there's things you have to do every day. I think, you know, you can make the case that you should have the right to not brush your teeth and get cavities and lose all your teeth. And I think in a way you'd be right. Like you do have the right to do that. Right. But you have a right to do that as long as you've been informed that what the outcomes are. And you are very clear on the consequences of poor hygiene. And if you can't be clear on those consequences, it is a far more, I think, appropriate and positive approach to say like the consequences of doing this correctly are that you are going to have a healthier, more comfortable life with greater access to reinforcers. 
And the consequences of not doing this, like you have the right to do that. But if you, again, if you don't understand that and all you have is someone teaching you sort of a rote routine, then the consequences of teaching someone to do something that is self-care is going to pay off more in the long run rather than saying, well, we don't know if they want to know self-care, so we can't assume that we should teach them anything. Right. Well, the thing is like, they don't know that, you know, they don't, they don't actually have a choice to say, yes, I would like to lose all my teeth in 10 years because I didn't brush them. And like, yes, I would like to lose my hearing in in five years because I listened to music too loud. And yes, I would like to walk around blind because I will refuse to sit and get tested for glasses. They don't actually have that choice if they don't understand the consequences. Yeah. Like in that case, you're making that choice for them. So the best that we can do is teach them how to do the things that are likely to allow them to be the most successful. Mm-hmm. A lot of the self-care things. And then from there, once they have contacted some of those consequences, then there's an opportunity to teach them like, now you can maybe choose when these don't fit your lifestyle. I was sat in a panel today and and they made a really great argument about just the general, the general perspective on behavior analysis is that there is this like this inherent built-in idea of teaching autonomy. Yes. Because the thing is, it's like if I have more skills, then I have more choices. Like if I have the ability to do more things and I can communicate better, then I do have the option to request different things. I do have the option to access those different reinforcers or those different activities and those life events and stuff like that, too. Yes, love this. Yeah. I mean, as, as you kind of explore that idea, like, you know, like if I have more tools in my toolbox, I can work on more things. I can work on more projects. Right. So like with that metaphor in mind, you know, if we're able to provide more skills that are also like preferred by the learner too, or the folks that we're working with, I think that's another part of that is like that person, we can say, Hey, we can do this. Do you want to do this? Right. And if they say yes, then great. If they say no, then, Hey, you know what? Hey, here's what happens. If you don't have the skill, this could be a problem. Yeah. Now to the other point too, like at the early on, um, we did talk about the idea of that rote responding and kind of a possibility of where that comes from. And this is a critique of behavior analysis in that there are some behavior analysts that don't know how to move out of something like therapy voice. Yeah. And you'll hear some learners that you work with that will say, hi, how are you? Like they're bubbly, like, you know, they're like bubbly teenage cheerleaders. And it's like, well, mm, that's that's not like how you would normally greet somebody. Right. That seems like kind of an odd thing. So there are like practitioners that don't know how to teach social skills. There are practitioners that don't know how to teach greetings, that don't know how to teach social interactions and nuances. I mean, I, we've seen that plenty of times, like and that goes back to the critique of that's not necessarily apply behavior analysis itself. That's an issue of bad practice. And so sometimes rote responding comes from bad practice or less varied practice or less generalized practice or poor exemplars, or there's a lot of different reasons why this might emerge. It's not simply ABA. It's more involved than that. Yeah. And I could certainly see there being the case where someone who has a particular, like they're really good at early skill acquisition they maybe work with a family for a long time and they get a lot of those initial skills to come online, but they're not very good at the social stuff. And then they maybe want to stick with that family because they've been with them for so long. The family probably wants to stick with that therapist because they've been with them for so long. And so then they try and move into this, this space of social interactions where they don't have the competency and training and they kind of just trying to learn as they go. And that's, that's a, an opportunity where what they should have done is referred to someone else or like really invested heavily on continuing education yeah. where they could get better training on teaching those social skills. And like the field has those resources available. You just have to, as a practitioner, be willing to acknowledge your own limitations. Yeah. And sometimes that means that you have to move on. Like you, you have to say like, 
oh, listen, I love your family. I love working with your family. Things are, you know, have been really wonderful. We're at the point now where I can no longer be a benefit to this individual. Yeah. I need to refer you over here. You know, we'll we'll keep in touch and I'll I'll check in to see how progress is going. Yeah. Because I have a lot of vested interest in your progress as well. Yeah. And like sometimes that's where you gotta be. But otherwise it's like, okay, like I I'm committed to sticking with you. So I'm gonna go get a heavily trained and mentored and supervision from somebody who knows how to teach the social inter- interaction stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked with plenty of early intervention learner, like, like practitioners who are like really great at working with littles. And then the minute that the kid turns 12 or 13 and they start working with teenagers, they have no idea how to interact with these kids. There's a whole reason why I don't like to work with young kids because I'm not a cheerleader. Like I'm not that guy that's like, yeah, buddy, go. Like that's just not who I am. I tend to do better with adults and teens where I can kind of just be authentically myself and have authentic social interactions, you know, like. I think that's part of it. If, I, if I'm programming and I'm like working on social interactions that in in my own skill set is inauthentic, then it's going to be taught inauthentically. It's going to be learned inauthentically and it's going to be reproduced inauthentically. And then now you you've go. got a, a 22 year old guy going like, hi, how are you? Yeah. Hi, how are you? Instead of being like, what's up, man? Yeah. It's one of those things you like that scope of competence is absolutely important. I don't teach social skills programs because it's not in my skill set. I definitely refer out and get mentoring when I need to. Yeah, absolutely. I love moody teens. They're some of my favorite to work with. They're they're blast. <laughs> they're so much fun. But a lot of my initial training was with like really little kids, but like it was a really good fit for me with sort of teenagers. Like I immediately clicked yeah. with the kind of social interactions and for the exact same reasons you stated that you can be a little bit more I guess yourself, but also like you can talk a little more maturely exactly as you said of like, Hey, what's up is like an appropriate greeting for most of us when we're at that point. Yeah. I guess that's all this to say on that, but, but I I just like, (laughs) I like that comment a lot. (laughs) Ultimately too, like there is that argument and we, we won't get too heavy into it, but I mean, the idea of generalization, providing different examples of how to say things, different ways to say things. That is something that is not always as well placed into teaching opportunities as it should be. And that's a critique of the field too. Man, such a good teaser for next week's discussion. Aha, yay. <laughs> All right. Shall we do some take on points? Yeah, let's do it. I think that for me, again, I, I want to start by just validating the, the point that it is a perfectly valid critique that what can sometimes come out of these looks inauthentic and robotic and that there's a lack of understanding on the part of the person who's learned these skills and that can feel, I guess, uncomfortable to like have that be your loved one's way of approaching the world is these sort of just generic greetings and generic actions that look rote and not genuine. And so I think that that's a legitimate concern. And in response to that, I think like some of those still have a better outcome than doing nothing at all. I think at the same time too, like understanding the idea of what's considered socially, like socially normal is worth exploring. Like it's worth looking at like what are social norms, True. not to convert somebody to being normal, but to understand different responses that will actually get better reinforcers, right? Like if I, if I walk into a store and my greeting is, Hey, get bent, you know, it's probably not going to get me what I need, right? Like I, if I need to go grocery shopping and I tell the cashier to get bent, then I'm probably not going to walk out with my grocery store, but I'm probably going to walk out with a trespassing warrant. (laughs) So understanding like that type of, that type of context 
is a lot of where like, you know, the outcome based stuff, that's where these skills are often derived. It's not to make somebody more normal. It's to get them to contact more reinforcers that they want. That is a good point that we're going we're to come back to that in subsequent discussions, particularly as we get toward and, and to the discussion we're going to have about what is appropriate to change and, and not. And I think another point to make in here is that, you know, we are talking about from this perspective of sort of reform and doing better in general, and that we are acknowledging that there is room for us to improve in these spaces, and that that's something that is ongoing. And I think that it's a valid concern that it's not better than it is, and it is in, is in continued development for improvement. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Do you have any other take-home points? I think at the end of the day, I think this is a this is a valid critique. And I think this is one of the areas that the onus is on behavior analysts to do better. Okay, fair. Sweet. Well, we we have gotten some listener mail. They are long and they were very thoughtful. And I really appreciate those responses. And so I'm not gonna read those on here unless you email me back and ask me to, but keep them coming, I guess. And I think we sort of summarized. I think where there's some discussion to be had around some of the feedback that we've got, and there's more to unpack there. I just didn't want to do it all in one episode. There's some of this is going to be more relevant later, but for the time being, I think we can move into recommendations. Recommendations. I've talked about Stephen King on this show a couple times because uh, like Stephen King, yeah, I, weird, <laughs> right? So you know, I've recommended Dark Tower and The Outsider and all that, and and surprise, there's another book, and I'm going to recommend it, and it's called Later by Stephen King. It's one of his newer books. Okay, if you're not familiar with it, he's decided to do this like weird little contract with hard case books, which is okay. all like very pulpy detective style books. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so like, because Stephen King does this, he goes, oh. Is that a genre? I can write it. And he does it. <laughs> so like if you ever read anything by Richard Bachman, Richard Bachman is just Stephen King writing under a different name because he's like, I wonder if I can replicate my success. And then he did. That's just kind of who he is. So Stephen King writes letter later, and it's basically a better version of Sixth Sense. It's Stephen King's version of Sixth Sense, if you will. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, he comes right out and says it. He's like, oh, kind of like that movie with Bruce Willis, but different. Like he says it in the book. Okay. And it's fantastic. Super easy to read. It's done really well. It's about this like teenage kid who can see dead people and he uses it to kind of help solve crimes and stuff like that. Oh, neat idea. Yeah. And it gets real hairy real quick. It's got a nice little tie into it, which is cool, but it's written very pulpy, very detective comics, very like hard nose, hard boiled type of situation. And it's fantastic. It was an easy read. I read it in like a day and a half and it's fantastic. That means it's tied into the dark tower too, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. You could probably tie literally every Stephen King book into the Dark Tower somewhere, but this one has a direct, a very direct link to it. Got it. My recommendation is to adopt something like a habit. Adopt, sure. <laughs> <laughs> a good habit, I hope. A, a productive, yeah. productive one or a useful one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mostly meaning adopt. You know, adopt a pet specifically. Like you know, I would recommend a rescue animal. There are lots and lots and lots of animals that need homes. And so if you're looking for a pet, go to a shelter and, and get one from there. They will not run out of them anytime soon unless there was a big push to adopt. Or if you are wanting kids and maybe you've already had one or you're not sure if you want to put your body through that, yeah. either of you, 
you could <laughs> adopt a child. You know, I was, I was talking about it the other night and I was like, if every family in the country considered adopting a child and some of them would, you know, make a move on that and some of them wouldn't. But if everybody thought seriously about the opportunity to do that, there would be no kids in this in the system. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as one kid entered the system, they'd have a family. And there are hundreds of thousands of kids in the system now. So yep. I think just keep in mind of uh, adopting something, a pet or a child or both, and maybe a, a good habit if you want to. <laughs> I like that. That's a great recommendation. That's very okay. wholesome. That's my recommendation. I don't, I don't have a link to that one. It's just, uh, just yeah. a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a general recommendation. General recommendation. Cool. I like it. All right. Do you have anything else on this topic? Not today. Okay, cool. Just to reiterate this point, if you like the show and you'd like to support us, definitely subscribe, tell a friend. You can financially support us by joining us on Patreon. If you have any feedback about this episode or any of the episodes that we have ever done, including the previous two in this discussion, the series of discussions, please email us at info at www.podcast.com. You can reach us on all the social media platforms. And I think that is all I got. So I think this is, uh, actually, I know that this is Abraham. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is Shane. (laughs) And we are out. (laughs) See ya. I think. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Hey folks, it's Shane. Oh, we are frozen. I just got dropped out of the call. We are frozen and we just need to let it go. I don't know what's going to happen here. Or build a snowman in light of the freezing.